The Holy Scripture does not want to give us an abstract concept of deity, but rather wants to put us into contact with the living and true God. Hence, Scripture does not argue about God, but presents him to us and shows him in all the works of his hand. This is why the Holy Scripture points out to us constantly the mighty works of God. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Wednesday Conversation. I'm Bethany Gilbert and I'm here with Pastor Bob Thune of Cormdeo Church and Pastor Chris Hemmelman of First City Church. On Wednesdays, we sit down to talk about how the gospel of Jesus Christ connects to the questions and issues of everyday life. Today is Third Wednesday Theology and we're talking about creation and providence. And we're enjoying some pizza, courtesy of Edward, listener, who wanted to get us some pizza. So we're eating tasty pizza. Tasty, tasty pizza. pizza. Let's let's talk. Let's just talk a minute about the Omaha institution known as Tasty Pizza, Bethany. Uh, tasty Pizza, where you can get personalized pizzas for like six dollars, and they're delicious. It's the cheapest and best pizza you will find. They they have bacon gouda. It's the only pizza I ever get from there. I don't know why every pizza joint does not have a bacon gouda pizza because it is amazing. Also, I don't know how Tasty Pizza actually makes any money. Me either. Every, every time we go there. They are selling pizzas for like four seventy five. Wow! And you're like, what? How do you make any money off that? It's, I think, and you know what? I think this started after VBS each year. We used to have it at a church that was right across the street from Tasty Pizza, and we'd go and get that for lunch. And at one point, pizzas were three dollars and fifty cents. Yes. Now the prices have gone up. Inflation. Yep. Where is Tasty Pizza? Pizza. Okay, hang on. This is also a good story, Chris. <laughs> if you owned a business and then you were going to open a second location. You would generally like want to open it in a different part of the city, right? Generally. However, Tasty Pizza 1 is on 55th and Leavenworth. <laughs> Tasty Pizza 2 is on 60th and Pacific, which is literally like... <laughs> it's like five blocks bl- yeah. away. <laughs> oh, I know where the... Okay, so the one on Leavenworth, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. 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 Which, uh, it sadly, it had a f- there was a fire there recently, yeah. so I don't think that location's open anymore. But. It was just weird they opened a second location, like literally blocks from their yeah. first location. I was like, that's kind of a weird strategy. <laughs> yeah. But, well, I mean, it's kind of McDonald's. Is, there's yes. typically like three within a mile of each other. Or Starbucks. Yep. Or Starbucks. <laughs> All right, fair point. Creation and Providence is chapter uh, 11 of Herman Bovink's The Wonderful Works of God. I read the intro to this podcast. It was a few sentences from the very first paragraph of this chapter. In this chapter, we're going to talk about creation and we're going to talk about providence. And so we do this on the third Wednesday of every month as a way of learning together. So this is sort of a a chance to learn theology, a chance to read a book together, a chance to sort of talk, even for, for those of you listeners who are not reading, a chance for us on the podcast to talk about it in a way that hopefully helps you enter in, in some way, to some basic learning about Christian theology. And we love Bovink. He's old. He's dead. He's rich and refreshing. He writes well. He's devotional. He's reformed. There, there's a lot of reasons why. He's just a, a beloved theologian, Chris. Do you want to say? Do you want to eulogize Bavink at all? I mean, what can be said that hasn't already been said? <laughs> <laughs> In that case, but even even podcast the, over. Yeah, we're done. But the quote that you read, I think, captures Bavink's writing and thought very well. Where he doesn't want to just talk to you about theological concepts; he wants you to know God personally, and yeah. that, that's the beauty of how he does theology. Okay, so he's going to talk first of all in this chapter about creation. What does it mean that? There is a created world, and then providence, which is sort of God's upholding of the world at every moment. And the the work he does here, so when, when I say those two words, I think most people go, okay, sure, I believe there's a creator because I've read Genesis, and okay, providence, sure. 
but there is so much packed into each of these headings. And Bavink does a really thorough job in this chapter teasing out what we mean as Christians when we say that there is a creator and what we mean as Christians when we say that the events that happen in the world happen under the providence of God. This gets us into questions like, do we have free will? Uh, do cre- is there anything in the world that we can control or sort of make free decisions about? Or is everything just sort of programmed? And all of these kinds of questions fall under the heading of providence. What does it mean that God sustains the world? What you're going to see in Bovink's treatment of creation is that he does philosophy. And if you're going to understand basic Christian theology, you have to care a little bit about philosophy because when we think about creation, we're asking the most foundational question that human beings ask, which is, why is there something instead of nothing? Your four-year-old asks questions like this, how did we get here? These are really basic human questions. And so Bavink begins in the philosophical category of ontology, that is the study of being. Why is there something and not nothing? And here's what he begins to write, page 146. The question as to the origin of things is an old question, but it always remains an appropriate one. Science can supply no answer to it. Science itself takes its position on the basis of things as they are and assumes the existence of the things it investigates. From the nature of the case, therefore, science cannot go back to the time when things were not yet. Science cannot penetrate to the moment when they were given reality. This is a crucial point for any conversation you have with anyone who is sort of like a capital S science person. They're like, well, science explains everything. No, science doesn't explain how we got here, where everything came from. The only thing science can study are existing materials. And so it can tell us a lot about the world as it is, It tells us nothing about where the world came from. And so he goes on to talk about evolution. Listen to what Bobbing says. Remember, he's writing in 1906, Chris. Is that about right? Mm -hmm. Evolution is no doubt a wonderful thing, but it must always assume that there is something which is evolving. Evolution is not and cannot itself be a creative force causing and bringing things into being. It is at best an expression of the process through which things go once they exist. The theory of evolution consequently lacks the potential of explaining the origin of things. The theory of evolution begins with an assumption which is quite undemonstrable and accordingly also takes its position on faith. In this, it is like the theory of creation of all things by the hand of God. The brilliant point Bravik is making is if you're going to just go back to the fundamental question of was the world created or did it evolve, either way, you are taking a position of faith. And that's an important thing for us to embrace as Christians, especially in conversations with people who are skeptical and want to assert that we are people who, you know, live by faith, but that they don't. Yeah, philosophically, this argument hasn't really changed much over the past hundred some years where, well, the explanation of evolution and our understanding of quantum mechanics and all that may have become more sophisticated in some ways. But when you come to the point that he's making that uh, where did it all come from? How is how is there something rather than nothing? Uh, those who are completely hardcore evolutionists, they have they, there's no answer. I, I was uh, I had a conversation with a family member over Christmas break, and uh, he's you know he'll tell you he's easy either an agnostic, atheist, whatever, but very thoughtful, very thoughtful. And we kind of got on this topic, and I asked him, so where where does it come from? And he's like, you know, 
it's just always kind of been there. Like he just, it's, that's what I believe that he, he had to kind of concede that point. And I appreciated his honesty. He didn't try to dance around uh, the issue and said, yeah, I, I mean, there's a, there's an aspect of faith here. So I think though Bavink's context is a little bit different in some of the ways that evolution was articulated, the philosophical argument hasn't changed and it really won't change, can't change. Well, and it's important that listeners understand that when we talk about the, oftentimes the simplistic conversations about evolutions you will have with like new atheists or college students, for instance, people who have an unsophisticated understanding of what they're saying is evolution explains everything. But actually, when we talk about origin, where did reality come from? We are in the realm of philosophy. We're not in the realm of science, Mm -hmm. and we're not even in the realm of theology, really. We're in the realm of philosophy. How do we explain the fact that anything at all exists? And this is a question that has been a philosophical question for centuries and millennia before anybody ever reasoned with it as a scientific question. So here's what Bavink says. Theorists of evolution can choose to go in one of two directions in accounting for the original nature of things. In the first place, they can say that matter was primary. That is the direction of materialism. It holds that matter is the eternal constituent of the world, and it seeks to explain energy in terms of matter, the soul in terms of the body, and the psychical in terms of the physical. That's probably your most basic worldview right now in the, the world around us. One can also take the other position and say that energy was the primary thing and that it remains the ground of all existing things and that man, matter is an expression or manifestation of energy, that the body does not create the soul, but the soul the body. That is the direction of pantheism. It holds that energy is the eternal basic principle of all things. And so... What he's saying is you kind of have two directions. You have materialism, matter is the original thing that existed in the universe, or you have pantheism, energy is the original thing that existed in the universe. This is your Eastern religions. This is your new age. This is anyone who would say there's not a personal God, but there is like an energy or a a primal force in the universe that sort of grounds everything. Like the force from Star Wars, Hmm, more or less. (laughs) Yes, a very good expression of pantheism. At bottom, Bavik... Then, after setting up, okay, you can say materialism, or you can say pantheism. Then he says, page 148, the Holy Scripture takes a very different position. What it tells us about the origin of things is not offered to us as the result of scientific investigation, nor in the interest of a philosophical explanation of the world, but in order that we through it should come to know the one true God and put our trust in him alone. It is an explanation which does not proceed from the world but from God. It holds not that the world, but God is eternal. The thing the Holy Scripture is primarily on guard against is the confusion of God with his creation. They are to be distinguished as creator and creature. And that is the most foundational philosophical point to understand when we do theology is to say the whole Bible starts from the foundational distinction that there is creator and there is creature. Every non-Christian worldview starts with the assumption that the created world is all there is, and that there is nothing beyond that or transcending that. Now, you're going to see a nice little move from Bavinkir when he starts talking about what has classically been called creation ex nihilo, the fact that God created the world out of nothing. He writes, Scripture denotes that God brought all things into being out of nothing. True, the actual expression that God made all things out of nothing does not occur in Scripture. It occurs first in the second book of the Maccabees. 
This term, out of nothing, can lead to misunderstanding. What is nothing does not exist, and therefore cannot be the principle or origin out of which things have come to be. After all, nothing can come from nothing. I like what he's doing here, because he's saying, hey, actually, if we're going to be philosophically rigorous about this, we shouldn't actually say God created the world out of nothing, because if there's nothing, then nothing can come from nothing. Yeah. And yeah. so he's, he's actually sort of being a very careful theologian here to say, let's be clear with our language. What he goes on to write is, um, humanly speaking, we can say that God first existed alone, and thereupon the whole world was brought into being by his counsel and will. And to this extent, we can rightly say that God made the world out of nothing. So he's just clarifying and saying, we're not saying there was nothing and then there was something. We're saying God, out of his will and counsel, created the world. Because if you're not careful, what he's, he doesn't necessarily say this directly, but the implication is philosophically you can start to, if something can come out of nothing, then you end up removing God and you can right. kind of get get there philosophically or this spontaneous matter or something that happens. And so he's, he's wanting to avoid that implication. The next question he seeks to answer is why then did God create the world? Why does the world exist? And listen to his answer. Scripture which is the word of God and which from beginning to end takes God's part, declares plainly and powerfully and loudly that God does not exist for the world, but that the whole world and all its creatures exist for God, for his sake and for his glory. And that again is the fundamental starting point of Christian theology is to say that we don't exist for, we exist for God, not God for us, that God is the foundational being in the universe and all things exist for him. And so when we ask, why are we here and what are we here for? The answer always points us back to God. Yeah, this I think this might be my favorite part of this chapter because he does some really careful, and he does it just in a, in a paragraph or two, some very careful um, distinguishing between what it means that God created for his glory and what it doesn't. Because in, in even well-meaning Christians can sometimes fall into this way of talking about this where it almost sounds like God needs us. Even if we wouldn't say that directly, um, I've heard even some good Reformed people talk about the glory of God and make it in, implied like if we weren't created, then God wouldn't get glory. And and so it, I think it's a way of trying to press the issue and say, why why would God create rather than not? Well, for glory. Well, okay, so why? Because he needs us for his glory. And so it's even that, Bob Inc. is just being very careful to to push against any notion that God had to make us in order to achieve something um, or get something um, that he was lacking in and of himself. Unsurprisingly, Bethany, one of the verses he quotes repeatedly in this chapter is Romans eleven thirty six, From him and through him and to him are all things. It's almost like you should put that on a big stained glass window in your church For building. sure, yeah. Bavink concludes the section on creation this way. It is God's good pleasure to bring the excellencies of his triune being into manifestation in his creatures and so to prepare glory and honor for himself in those creatures. For this glorification of himself, too, God does not need the world, for it is not the creature who is independently and self-sufficiently exalting his honor. It is rather he himself, who by means of the creature or without him, glorifies his own name and revels in himself. God, therefore, never seeks out the creature to find something there that he is lacking. The whole world in its length and breadth is for him a mirror in which he sees his excellencies at play. He always remains resting in himself as the highest good, and he remains eternally blessed 
by his own blessedness. Mm. That's kind of the thing you were yeah. talking about there, Chris, where he just makes clear that God is the beginning and end of all things. Yeah. And prior to that, he also makes, I think, an important point too, where he says, at the same time, it would be a mistake to think that God creating the world was irrational. We can swing on the other side, on one side saying, um, you know, he he made it because he needed to. You swing on this side and say, he didn't need to make it. He didn't doesn't need us. And then you're kind of left with this, well, then he just sort of made it and it's irrational, doesn't make sense. And Bobbing's careful to say, it's not irrational. Now, God has his purposes that are part of his divine will, and we don't always understand them. But whatever his reasons and how his glory is tied up into that, don't think that God is just arbitrary in creating, that it's good that we're here. There's purpose for us to be here, and God chose to create uh, for the reasons in himself that are very, very good, and we should, um, whether we understand those or not, we should just honor acknowledge that. Did you say honor acknowledge? Honor and acknowledge. Sorry, oh. I jumbled my words there. <laughs> you said honor, honor, no- honor and knowledge. acknowledge. Let me read to you Bovink's description of time and space. This fascinated me. I had never thought about this before. Listen to how carefully he describes this. Page 152, time and space are not independent creatures called into being by a separate mighty act of God. Time and space are indispensable forms of existence for created beings. God alone is eternal and omnipresent. Creatures, because they are creatures, are subject to time and space, though not all of them are this in the same way. Time makes it possible for a thing to continue to exist in a succession of moments, for one thing to be after another. Space makes it possible for a thing to spread out to all sides, for one thing to exist next to another. Time and space, therefore, began to exist at the same time as the creatures and as their inevitable modes of existence. They did not exist beforehand as empty forms to be filled in by the creatures, for when there is nothing, there is no time or space either. They were not made independently alongside of the creatures as accompaniments, so to speak, and appended from the outside. Rather, They were created in and with the creatures as the forms in which those creatures must necessarily exist as limited, finite creatures. Augustine was right when he said that God did not make the world in time, but that he made it together with time, and time together with the world. That is really interesting to think about. And of course, as you see, every good Reformed theologian is just going back to Augustine. It's all just yes. a commentary on Augustine. <laughs> That's what we do. It's all a footnote, yeah. Um, it, we should point out, going back a minute in our conversation, Chris, that, that this is what good Reformed theology does, is it has a high view of God. Mm-hmm. It's what, what, When we use the language of Reformed, really what we're saying is the tradition that has a high and holy view of God and that seeks to understand all of reality and all of revelation in light of how does it glorify God and lead us to glorify God. So does time exist? Yes, time is does it exist. A, it, it is a thing. It is a, it thing. Is a thing. Well, that's a good question. He yeah. says maybe, <laughs> maybe it's a mode of existence. Yeah, yeah. Well, this, this got me going too. I, I once had a conversation with a with a student. I mean, you know, granted, you know, as well as a high school student can dive into some of these things, but he's a very thoughtful kid. He's like, does time exist, Mr. H? I'm like, well, I think it does. And he's like, well isn't it just arbitrary, you know, what we call seconds and minutes? And so we got into this interesting conversation of, okay, is it arbitrary? But I think what Bavink is pointing out here is that 
time and space are not independent entities from creation. That they yes. that if creation ceased to exist, they would cease to exist too. That they are bound up with creation. They're a part of the created order. But and this is this is a little bit, you know, past what we're talking about. But if you consider the nature of time and how it's placed within redemption and redemptive history and at the appointed time, like the way scripture talks about time, it's definitely a thing. Hmm. You think so, huh? I think so. It's interesting because I, I wonder, as you were talking, I was thinking if this maps onto Augustine's understanding of evil, where he doesn't understand evil as a thing, an entity, but rather as the privation yeah, of good. Yeah. You know, and so Augustine's interesting because he says evil would not exist if good didn't exist. It's just the it's the same way that darkness is the absence of light, evil is the absence of good. It's almost like Bavink and Augustine are saying time is time exists because creatures exist in time. Yeah. But it's almost yep. subsidiary to the the existence of created beings. Yeah. Yeah. I I watch way too much Doctor Who and so this conversation about time time is actually this thing in you know some some have this philosophical belief that it is its own independent thing with its own existence. Bavink doesn't think so. I, I and I think I agree with him. Well, but yeah, I could see that you're thinking Chris may come back and revise yeah. this opinion later, everyone. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, here's the question you all want to know. I know Bethany wants to know. Are there aliens? Are there other planets? Are there other solar systems? Yeah. What does Bobbing say? And how many days did it take for God to create the world? What does the six Ooh. days mean? Oh. That's, can, we, can we just talk about that the rest of the podcast? I, w- I was almost going to ask that. All right, Bethany, let's start with aliens. Yes. Page 156. When scripture speaks about the world, it tacitly proceeds from the assumption that there is but one world. In the theses of the philosophers, this matter is often presented very differently. There are many who held that various worlds coexist alongside of each other, and that not the earth alone, but other planets also were inhabited by living and rational creatures. The present world, therefore, was not the only one, but had been preceded by innumerable other worlds and would be succeeded by further ones. Scripture quietly passes by all these imaginations. It tells us that in the beginning God created this world, that it runs through a history centuries in duration, and that after this historical process, that eternal Sabbath will enter in, which remains for the people of God. It knows nothing about the habitability of other planets. It holds to the position that only man was created in the image of God, that the Son of God did not assume the nature of, age, nature of angels, but the nature of mankind, and that the kingdom of heaven spreads out and is actualized on this earth. So it sounds like what Bob Mick is saying is, I don't know, Bible doesn't really talk about any other planets, aliens, worlds, it just says its its primary concern is this world, which yeah. kind of leaves the door open, Bethany. Leaves, he leaves the door open for you. We're going to yeah. need some more concrete answers than that, Bob yeah. Inc., but well, it's an answer. Here's uh, here's his answer on the, the days of creation. The, the scripture tells us the world is finite. The question of how long the world has existed adds nothing to this and subtracts nothing from it. Even though the world had existed for thousands or millions of years longer than it has, that would not constitute it as eternal in the sense that God is eternal. What he's saying is the, the important thing Scripture wants you to understand is that this world had a beginning. Yeah. And Scripture's point is not really to hash out, were the six days, six calendar, 24-hour days, or were they six ages of time, or what do, you know, yeah. how, how are we to parse out what that meant? In fact, fascinatingly, in a rather speculative part of the chapter, he says, perhaps the angels came into existence in the gap between 
Genesis 1-1 and the rest of Genesis. Yeah, his handling of Genesis 1-1, I don't think, this is, I actually found a place where I'm like, I don't, I don't think I agree with Boving's exegesis because he, he argues that it's, it's not a summation and then one, Genesis 1-1 is not a summation and then two forward is the explanation. He's saying that this is actually sort of an independent event from, and I know that's an argument, but I, I don't think exegetically I agree with Let that. me read what Herman yeah. has to say. Bottom of page 153, the whole work of creation, according to the repeated testimony of the scriptures, was completed in six days. There has, however, been a good deal of difference of opinion and freedom of speculation about those six days. No one less than Augustine, that's who we're referencing again, judged that God had made everything perfect and complete at once, and that the six days were not six successive periods of time, but only vantage points from which the rank and order of the creatures might be viewed. On the other hand, there are many who hold that the days of creation are to be regarded as much longer periods of time than 24-hour units. In the first place, we cannot be sure whether what is told us in Genesis 1, 1 and 2 precedes the first day or is included within that day. In the second place, the first three days must have been very unlike ours, for our 24-hour days are affected by the revolution of the earth on its axis. But those first three days could not have been constituted in that way. The distinction between them was marked by the appearance and disappearance of light, but the book of Genesis itself tells us that sun and moon and stars were not formed until the fourth day. So what he's saying is, is that those six days, it is hard, even if you want to take them as six literal days, they're still very much unlike our 24-hour day. What Bavik is trying to help you have is a little epistemic humility. Yes. You can have all kinds of views on these first six days. They're all within the bounds of orthodoxy. Be a little bit humble in whatever view you hold, because even Augustine, going that far back, admitted that there's various ways of understanding what exactly are we so, talking about. So what, what you're saying, Bob, what Bavink is saying, what Augustine was saying is that you can be orthodox, believe in the inerrancy and authority of Scripture, and inspiration of Scripture, and not read Genesis 1 as six literal days. Yes, that is what I, Bavink, and Augustine are all saying. <laughs> Great. I feel I would, like I'm in good company. I, yes, I would agree with, with you, Bavink, <laughs> and Augustine as well. All right. Um, so there you go. There's Bavink's answer on what the days are. Um, now he wants to turn in the second half of the chapter, and we'll keep this pretty brief, to a discussion of providence. What does it mean that God um, oversees the world and carries forward the world? And the key distinction he makes here is the distinction between uh, first causes and secondary causes, which is a distinction we also see in the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's in most of the major Reformed confessions. And here is what we're, theologians have thought through carefully. Irrespective of the fact that God's providence is surveillant over sin also, Scripture firmly and resolutely maintains that the cause of sin lies not in God but in men, and that it is reckoned to be not God's but men's. He goes on to say, The Lord is righteous and holy, Deuteronomy 32.4, he is a light without darkness, 1 John 1.5, he tempts no man, James 1.13, he is the overflowing fountain of all that is good, Psalm 36, he forbids sin in his law, Exodus 20, and in the conscience of every man, Romans 2, he takes no delight in iniquity, Psalms 5, but hates it and storms in wrath against it, Romans 1.18, 
and threatens it with temporal and eternal punishment, Romans 2. That's him dropping a bunch of Bible verses on you to say, if you're going to say that God's responsible for sin, I got 10 Bible verses that you need to go read. (laughs) But he goes on to say, these two lines of Holy Scripture, according to which sin falls under God's governance and is nevertheless chargeable to man's account, can be reconciled with each other only if God and the world are on the one hand not separated from each other, and yet on the other are essentially distinguished from each other. So hear what he's saying there carefully. We have two lines in Scripture. We have the line that everything, including sin, falls under God's governance. There's nothing happening in the universe that's like, oh, God doesn't know about that or is not sovereign over that. And at the same time, sin and evil is chargeable to man's account. We are responsible for our sin. And Boving says these two lines can be reconciled only if God and the world are not separated but are distinguished. Mm-hmm. So, so we can't separate and say God and, and the world have no, no connection to each other, but neither can we, collapse, can, can we collapse them together and say God is the world because th- he's saying that's how we get to the idea that our sin is somehow God's fault, yeah. that we're flattening the distinction between God and the world. So I think what, what Bavink does well here, what I, what I really appreciate, and sometimes I think he uses some categories we might be a little unfamiliar with, like pan, pantheism, pantheism. He likes to pull those out of the closet. Not a lot of people understand that. But what he's pointing to is philosophically, theologically, but also as you pointed out, philosophically, that when we start to make uh, assessments of how God governs the world, that what what, what he's trying to do is they, they kind of boil down to some simple understandings of how God relates to the world. Is God so far disconnected from the world that he doesn't govern? Is God and the world so distinct that they're one and the same? And I don't think that is brought into the conversation as much as it needs to be within our own kind of contemporary debates about the nature of God's sovereignty and free will and all those things. We just sort of think, uh, and I think in some simplistic terms, but what Bavink's trying to say, no, this actually, at the, the heart of it is your understanding of the distinction between God and the world and that relationship. And if you get that clear and right and biblical, the other things begin to kind of fall into place, I think, more clearly. And so this is a, I don't know, I haven't come across too many theologians that make these moves in in this conversation. Yes. Let me read from page 163. Theology means to do justice to the fact that God is the first cause of all that happens, but that under him and through him, the creatures are active as secondary causes cooperating with the first. We can speak of such secondary causes even in reference to inanimate creatures. For although it is true that God lets his son rise over the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust, that's Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount, he does make use of the sun and the clouds on such occasions. That's a great analogy. He's like, look, Jesus says God makes it rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, but he uses clouds to do that. (laughs) It's not like he uses magic. He sends a cloud and sends rain. And so that in itself, right, how weather works is a good analog of what we mean when we talk about primary and secondary causes. We're saying God stands behind everything, but secondary causes are at work in the world. Those secondary causes are sometimes irrational objects like clouds, uh, but also rational actors like human beings. Um, And so all of these things remain under the governance and providence of God while also in the sense of human beings having their own moral accountability and ethical accountability for the decisions that they make 
and for what comes of their decisions. We are responsible for our actions, and yet we are never outside of the governance and providence of God. Listen to how he concludes now, because this is where you see Bobbing's pastoral heart. Understood in this way, the doctrine of creation and providence is rich in encouragement and comfort. There is so much in life that is oppressive and that robs us of the strength to live and act. There are the adversities and disappointments which we meet on life's way. There are those terrible terrible calamities and disasters which sometimes cause hundreds and thousands of lives to be lost in nameless anguish. But life in its ordinary course also can sometimes raise doubts in the mind about the providence of God. Is not mystery the portion of all mankind? Is it not true that God has a quarrel with his creatures and that we perish in his wrath and are terrified by his anger? It is not unbelievers only, but the children of God also, who are seized upon by the awful seriousness of reality. And sometimes the question forces its way from the heart up to the lips. Can it be that God created man on the earth for nothing? There's Ecclesiastes, there's the book of Job, right? There's a lot of places in the Bible that that ask that question. He goes on to say, But then the despondent Christian, by a faith in God's creation and providence, again raises his head up high. No devil, but God the Almighty, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, created the world. It is in its entirety the work of his hands. Once he had created it, he did not let it go. By his almighty and omnipresent power, he sustains it. He governs and rules all things in such a way that they all converge upon the purpose that he has established. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords and his kingdom lasts unto all eternity. No accident and no necessity, no arbitrariness and no force, no caprice or iron destiny controls the world and its history. Behind all secondary causes, there lurks and works the almighty will of an almighty God and a faithful father. It speaks for itself that no one can really believe this with his heart and confess it with his mouth except the person who knows himself to be a child of God. The faith in providence stands in the most intimate of relationships with the faith in redemption. What I love about Bavink is that he would conclude a chapter that way, saying, hey, I've taught you all about these theological truths of creation and providence, and guess what? There's still natural disasters. Bad things still happen in life. Things happen to the people of God where they go, is there even a God in the world? And he says, it's okay that you're feeling those things, that you ask those questions. That's human. And that's where faith in God's creation and providence has to ground us and bring us back to the fact that we're children of God. Um, I just think it's a wonderful pastoral way to end a chapter like this because he could have just said, there, there's the, there's the theological stuff you need to know to pass your test. Yeah. But instead, he, he really brings it in a pastoral way to, to the existential questions that I think we all feel. Yeah, and the, he also doesn't go, God is sovereign, deal with it. Right. You know, <laughs> all you Arminians or whoever else, Pelagians, you deal with it. Uh, he makes a similar move um, towards the end of his section on on creation where uh, he he's he kind of ends with the creation was created good but sin has come into the mix and so this is uh for those of you that are reading on page 158 where he he highlights okay creation good sin entered into the world but it doesn't destroy the goodness and here's how we can understand still see the good in the midst of it he says nevertheless in this fallen and guilty world the good pleasure of God is being fulfilled. And then he goes on to say this, by giving the glorious promise that this world, with all of its suffering and oppression, 
becomes good for us again when we subject our will to that honor of God and make it serviceable to his glory. So he's pointing out two things. He's saying, one, yeah, you see the world, you see sin and the way sin has broken the world. You see the evil. But we can take hope in one, that God's goodwill and pleasure and purpose is still being worked out. And then for us as believers, this world is good when we live in this posture of submitting our lives to his purpose, his plan, his glory. And if that's the posture of our heart, that's the way we're living our lives, then the goodness of this world opens up to us and this world can be used for good. And so he's trying to push against the despair of be honest about the sin, but also pointing how can this world still be good for us? How can we still use the good, enjoy the good, experience the good? And so he wants to restore the hope we have in the goodness of the world without getting sentimental or minimizing sin. And so for him to use like what he does towards the end here too, where he's, he's trying to point, Hey, this doctrine of creation that God created the world good, it matters. It's not just a, a theological sort of how things began, but it also speaks to how we live now. And that's, you know, again, Bobbing being the great theologian and pastor. Yes. We see here in this chapter, again, Bavink as a theologian and how his pastoral heart is brought forward and how he leads us to worship, to doxology, where learning about God is not just factual and intellectual, but learning about God, understanding God, should lead us to worship, to praise, to prayer, to adoration, and to, as you just said, Chris, a posture of of living our lives before him, bowing our knee before him. And I I personally enjoy Bavink for the way that he brings those two worlds together. And I would say in all of my reading of theology, he's one of the unique theologians who does that for me. There are a lot of theologians I read just because I need to know stuff. There are devotional writers I read because I want to worship God. Rarely do I find the two uh, together. And Herman Bavink is one of those people. So, uh, hey, next month we'll dive into chapter 12, the origin, essence, and purpose of man. So he's going to move from creation in general to what does it mean to be a human being? Why are we here? How did we get here? What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Kind of an important topic these days. <laughs> Pretty much an important topic. And um, we just did at least three minutes on aliens in this episode. So mm. don't send me any more emails about alien podcasts because we just did it. We just did it. I don't know if we'll that... We'll see. I, I don't know. Bethany, we'll see. stay on this one. I don't think that was sufficient. <laughs> the goal of this podcast is to equip our own church for discipleship and mission. So if you're a Christian or a church leader in another context, we thank you for listening in and we pray that this conversation might be helpful to you as you minister in your context. We love to hear from listeners, so if you have thoughts, questions, or future podcast topics, send an email to podcast at cdomaha.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time for another episode of the Wednesday Conversation.